Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about Sharia and its two-century transformation under the British Empire. As I'm sure you know, the British Empire was a huge empire of Muslims, ruling over Muslim populations, majorities or minorities from West Africa all the way to Southeast Asia. And ruling over so many Muslim subjects and winning their consent, or at least compliance to British rule, meant that the empire also needed to engage with Islam. And like any modern state, the British Empire resorted not only to coercive force, but also to law. And this in turn meant engaging with Islamic law. In the conversation today, I'll be looking at the regions between India and Southeast Asia, what was then Malaya and what's now called Malaysia to the east, and at Egypt to the west. Three regions with large Muslim populations, majorities in Egypt and Malaya, and a very large minority of Muslims in India. And we'll be taking the whole colonial period as our ambit between around 1750 to around 1950. And we'll be exploring the transformation of Sharia through its engagement with the imperial state across these two centuries. Leading me in this conversation is Isa Hussain. Isa Hussain is an associate professor of Asian politics at Cambridge University. And she's the author of The Politics of Islamic Law, Local Elites, Colonial Authority and the Making of the Muslim State, which is published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Hello, Isa. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Niall. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an, it's an absolute pleasure. And today we're going to be talking about Sharia, which we would normally translate as Islamic law. But as we'll see, and as you're going to explain to us today, that translation and conception of Sharia as primarily law is in some ways the, the outcome of modern historical developments, not least developments involving modern states and moreover modern imperial states. And the British Empire, stretching as it did across so many different regions with large Muslim populations, was, of course, a very important uh, uh, empire for Muslims and indeed for these transformations of Sharia. So we're going to be focusing really on these transformations, these legal translations, these changing definitions, implications, uh, uses of Sharia between around 1750 and 1950, the kind of the age of, of the British Empire largely across the Islamic Asia and North Africa, Egypt. So to start us off, Isa, can you explain to us what Sharia meant? what it effectively was <laughs> at the beginning of this period of change in the 1700s, and, and also what Sharia meant, what it had become then, at the end of this period by the mid-20th century. Well, thank you. It's, a, it's, you know, an understandably incredibly big question. And so I wanted to say first that, you know, the, the book on which this conversation draws um, deals with India, Malaya, and Egypt as cases, right? So largely Shafi'i and Hanafi populations, um, a particular kind of orientation towards uh, the state, a particular uh, imperial power, the British in, in, um, in, for the most part. And so the story that India, Malaya, and Egypt tell in this period um, kind of illustrate two kinds of transformations, right? The first between 1750 and 1950 is the increasing centrality of the state into the story of Sharia. So the state gains through violence, through negotiation, through 
um, a number of different kinds of institutional changes, the right to say what the Sharia is, the right to dictate what its institutions will be and who will work for them and how they will be paid, um, and also the right to decide what the Sharia is not. Um, so, so the first big change is the increasing dominance of the state as the arbiter and the deliverer of, of what I will for now call Islamic law. Um, and the second is the, the contraction of that domain of Islamic law from, and this is the Sharia before, right, from having jurisdiction over a very broad but somewhat vague basket of goods, right, civil, criminal, public, personal areas of life, to very different degrees of control and intervention, to a more concentrated domain, um, ritual observance, what we now call family or personal status law, and certain areas um, of, of criminal law. And alongside these two transformations, we see a third important shift, that even as these um, domains of law that Islamic law cover become more restricted, their symbolic and political gravity for the power and authority of the state becomes more concentrated. Um, and so the, the, uh, the answer to the question about the shift is really about uh, recasting of where Islam and Islamic legal content and institutions fit, where they don't fit, and to what extent they define what it means to be a Muslim state and a Muslim person. That's really helpful because, you, yeah, you've given us this, this uh, key actor here, isn't it, really, which is, which is the states, mm. and in particular these, these growing colonial states, European-run states, and, and as you'll no doubt explain to us that it was in many cases European administrators, perhaps legal advisors, others that are trying to, in a sense, comparatively, there's exercises of, of legal comparison to get their own heads around what this thing Sharia is and, and and indeed perhaps kind of conceive it and thereby change it differently. So, and with the state, we're here thinking about really these new types of states, new types of not just imperial European states, Muslims, of course, had lived under states and empires of their own of different kinds, of course, for a thousand years before the 1700s when, when your analysis takes off. But these are more centralizing more increasingly bureaucratic states with with new, new technologies i guess of communication of centralization of coercion and persuasion etc etc and the other thing you mentioned is just to clarify for our listeners you you mentioned that you're particularly dealing with the the shafi'i and the, the hanafi schools of, of islamic law and these as, as many listeners will know and as some won't are, are two of the four Sunni schools of Islamic law. So then the differences between these schools are really kind of differences in in legal technique. What tools, what criteria do you use to decide upon a, a moral or indeed legal recommendation? What tools and criteria do you use to interpret the, the Quran and the Sunnah, the sayings of the records of the sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad? And to what extent then can you use analogy, comparison, reason, et cetera, et cetera. So you're looking at two of these very widespread, perhaps the two most widespread schools of, of Islamic law of Sharia altogether, the Shafi'i and the Hanifi. So <laughs> let's now get back to this process of change that, that you describe in, and, and analyze in your book. And perhaps we can work our way through this, these changes that that you you mapped for us in in your book the politics of islamic law so to take us then step by step can you take us through the first stages is there in this process of in, of transformation and for the sake of simplicity let's say this changes from around 1750 to around 1850 we've got a kind of a century to work with yes sure um i'll start with with two moments, um, and, and the book does sort of um, concentrate on, on treaties, on trials, and on sort of representations um, of Islam and uh, the Muslim state. And to say that, you know, it, between 1750 and, uh, well, more, more specifically between sort of 1765 and um, 1874, which are the two moments that I'll talk about, um, you see um, first the coming of the British um, 
firstly, as the East India Company uh, to, to India, right, to, to encounter with the Mughal Empire in particular. Um, and then the second movement is the movement of the British from the Indian Empire, uh, largely in order to protect both ends of the Suez Canal trade, right, um, to Egypt and to Malaya at about the same time um, in the middle of the 1800s. And so we see in that moment, um, again, the big, the big shifts that, that I opened with, right? So uh, a change in the historic breadth of Sharia institutions and functions, right? Um, we go from looking at broad-based jurisdictions of the, the Mughal Empire and the Malay um, sultans, although I'll talk more about the sultans later, um, broad-based jurisdiction over contracts and commercial in inter interactions, over criminal law, over marriage and divorce, over public law and state policy, religious and ritual observance, and increasingly uh, concern um, um, by the imperial and colonial state that these domains should not be left to local elites or local government. They should be increasingly centralized, if not under the control of the colonial state, under its authority. Um, and then reserving for Sharia institutions and courts much more limited domains of marriage, of divorce, of family, and some matters of ritual and religious observance, such as endowments of Qaf. Then we see in the towards the end of this period an increasing investment in these domains of Islamic legitimacy. Um, and so the state's ability to deliver the Sharia becomes invested in these limited domains, whereas it left much more free to legislation, to the action of the courts, to policy, uh, much freer to alter other areas of law and life, right? So um, the first moment is, um, let's for simplicity's sake, mark that beginning as the Treaty of Allahabad in, uh, between the East India Company and the Mughal Empire, 1765. Um, and it's this moment in which the East India Company gains the right to act, not in place of, but on behalf of the Mughal Emperor in what is now Bengal, Bihar and Orissa. And the East India Company makes a strong claim as it does later, um, as the British Empire does in many other places, it makes a strong claim that what it's not what it's not doing is interfering. It's merely administering, right? And this is what states say generally. Um, it makes a strong claim that it is an agent for taxation and contract enforcement, that it is not interfering in matters beyond this, and in all matters beyond its jurisdiction, it applies the laws of the Mughals. In reality, what we see between 1765 and the 1870s is that while the British preserved some of the pre-colonial forms and institutions of law that were in place before 1765, they function quite differently over the course of the next hundred years. And we see three big changes, right? The first of which is the fundamental, perhaps non-Shari, perhaps not religious at all, but the fundamental categorical assumption that you can divide India into two units of population, Muslim and Hindu, that religion is the line that divides us, not language, not belonging, not race, not geographical location, and that these religions can be accurately and properly derived from sacred text. Right. So in 1776, we've got a document called the Hastings Plan, which defines, I quote, Muslim law as indigenous norms to be derived from the Quran, and then it specifies where these will be applied in all suits regarding inheritance, marriage, caste, and other religious usages or institutions. So you already see here a huge amount of translative and jurisdictional work being done simply by the division between Hindu and Muslim and for Muslim defining uh, that Islam in terms of a particular relationship between the Quran and specific areas of life and not others, right? And they do this for Hindus as well, um, deriving Hindu law from what they call the Brahmanic Shastas, perhaps even more problematic. Right? So second, the second big transformation replaces um, within the domains of Islamic law, the central role of Sharia interpreters, experts, legal scholars, and ulama, the scribes, 
the judges, the interpreters, the actuaries, the advisors, the lawyers, with a reliance on text. Um, because one of the things that happened in the context of uh, the takeover of India from Bengal, Bihar and Orissa to larger and larger areas of population is this increasing sense in the middle of the British administration uh, that people are unreliable and that texts are set, unchanging, um, better. <laughs> um, and that British colonial officials untrained in the Sharia replaced people with text, such as the Hidayah, right? And texts not intended by their original Muslim authors and compilers to serve as legal codes. Um, so first, the division of law, second, the reliance, increasing reliance on texts, and third, in even in those areas, the increasing concentration of authority over the law in the hands of state run, state paid, and state trained administrators and institutions. So increasing interpretive control, as well as control over the labor of Islamic law and its educational institutions and its arbiters. This is what non-interference looks like to the British Empire from the 1760s to the 1870s, right? And we see this non-interference follow the British as they go from India to Malaya and Egypt. And we see it in other areas of um, British rule as well. And of course, you know, it's important to kind of point out that there, not only is there a resistance and accommodation, there's massive variability even within what we now think of as India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, local autonomy over legislation, adjudication and enforcement. But as a broad continental story, um, this continues for much of British India. Despite um, um, all these variations. And so after 1858, when the British Crown takes over administration of India from the East India Company, British colonial assumptions about what Islamic law is, how it should be administered, and by whom start to take on new momentum. And when the British leave, um, you know, British trained, British experienced officials leave India for Malaya um, and Egypt um, to protect British economic interests reliant upon shipping through both ends of the Suez Canal trade, these lessons they bring with them and they attempt to apply in Malaya and in Egypt. And so that's the second movement, right? The, um, into the 1850s and the 1870s. Um, and just to get all the way to the end of that story before I come to the second moment, you see by the end of the colonial period, which I think of as, as World War I um, in, in the book, right? It's not the end of the colonial period, but that's where my, my part of the story ends. Um, Islamic law is a state good, right? Its elites are paid by the state, it is arranged into state hierarchies, its texts are part of uh, and determined by uh, state law or replaced by it, its rules, its processes, its institution, and even the contestation of those rules is state controlled. Um, and some of the elites who had been um, autonomous actors in institutions of the Sharia were now part of, um, of that Islamic authority and governance. And I'll talk a little bit later about these changes and their political and social consequences. But going back to the second moment, this is 1874, this is when the British come to Malaya um, and establish what we tend to refer to as indirect rule in the Malay states. Uh, 1874, they sign a treaty with the Malay sultans um, in the state of Perak, which is now just north um, of Kuala Lumpur, um, the Treaty of Pankor, 1874. And the Pankor Treaty describes its domain, and you'll hear the lesson from India brought forward, right? The Pankor Treaty basically says um, that the, the Malay sultans will seek the advice of British uh, residents, I quote, in all matters excepting those of religion and culture. So by the time we get to the 1870s in Malaya, we know what that is, right? Um, and what it is um, through violence, through negotiation, through uh, compacts with Malay elites all up and down the Malay Peninsula, for the next few decades, the colonial state in Malaya defines religion and culture in terms of what we now quite 
familiarly see as Islamic law in most post-colonial Muslim states. Family law, inheritance, religious endowments, al-Khaf. So this is a separate space for Islamic law understood as religion and culture. It's a new space in the politics of the Muslim and colonial state. And it would become into the 1900s and into the post-colonial period, an increasingly common space in which to locate and confine Islamic law. And it's had significant political consequences, which I'll talk about later. Um, and very briefly, if um, I'll talk about Egypt, because Egypt um, represents not so much a comparator in the story that I tell in the book, but a reference point. Um, um, and you know, one of the really important things about Egypt is it is, uh, whereas India is a laboratory for the British and for much of the Muslim world on how to govern Muslim subjects, um, Egypt becomes a laboratory for how to express that governance in the language of the law. And after the British occupation in the 1880s, you see a major institutionalization of Islamic law within a state hierarchy of courts, right? So Islamic law, um, it, one of the reasons Islamic law is not equivalent to the Sharia is that in, in my analysis is that by the 1880s, Islamic modifies the law in such a way that there are other kinds of law. The Sharia doesn't quite um, recognize that bifurcation, right, between Islamic law and public law, administrative and criminal law and Islamic law. Um, but by 1880s Egypt, we see this already. We see the law of the Sharia courts, um, placing the courts within a national hierarchy overseen by the Ministry of Justice. We see by 1883 that the Sharia courts have been reduced in a certain kind of hierarchical manner to third place after the mixed and the national courts. And these are the only courts by the 1880s that are applying uncodified law and their domain has been reduced to a personal status, to al-qaf and to, you know, um, gift, hiba. Um, and this continues into 1890s and the 1910s reducing these courts' jurisdiction to matters of personal status. Um, so that's the story. Um, I, I bled through into the 18, uh, past, past the, the moment that you uh, told me to stop, right? The, uh, into the 1870s and the 1900s. Um, but the Egypt story begins a little bit later and that's, that's why that's there. This is so very interesting, Isa. And, and what you've been explaining is perhaps it's helpful for listeners to to if I just sort of re-emphasize the 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 sort of the geographical scope of the East India Company that you've been speaking about in this period of really at least until 1858 when the East India Company is, is abolished by the British Parliament and Crown. This is the company empire, the East India Company's empire. And the East India Company's been founded on Christmas Day, 1600. It's had it's kind of crept in, sort of uh, approaching the representatives of the Mughal Empire, sort of almost on his knees, I guess, and and got a series of contracts through the 1600s and 1700s to be able to trade with the Mughal Empire. So from its very outset, the East India Company, in order to be a trading company has been having to deal with legal matters, with, with trading contracts and things that are incumbent upon that. And then, as you've mentioned, in, in this key moment, in this key treaty in 1865, with the, the Treaty of Allahabad, as the Mughal Empire has been falling apart with internal and external invaders, it's been shrinking, the representative sort of de facto, as well, or maybe even de jure more, representative of the Mughal Empire in, in Bengal has been defeated and then signed this Treaty of Allahabad, as you mentioned, in North India with the East India Company, in which the company is now saying, OK, we're we're not just doing commercial law, we're not just doing trade and trade contacts, now we're doing tax, we're gathering tax, and we're administering law of all kinds of things for all of these people, Hindu and, and, and primarily, as you said, I think in terms of Hindu and Muslim. So this raises to me a question that you mentioned this really, well, how important was it? But certainly it's a text that becomes very important. The, the Hidayah, it's short titled, the guidance, as we can call it in English, the book of legal or jurisprudential guidance, which has been written by a, a famous Hanafi of the Hanafi school you've mentioned, jurist Al-Marginani, 
who dies in the, around the year 1200 in Uzbekistan. But the East India Company seizes on this text and has it translated and then printed, etc., etc. So this begs a question in my mind, and perhaps for other listeners too, that is what we've got going on here. Scholars now are thinking, talking in terms of this phenomenon of legal pluralism, that we've got you know, British traditions of common law tradition, we've got this thing, Sharia, that the East India Company officials are trying to get their heads around with. There's also forms of Hindu law as well, if that's a, at least as it's being seen by East India Company officials. So is what's happening here that we've got British East India Company officials, they're familiar with common law, they're very familiar with the idea of legal precedent, which is written down and recorded, and this idea of text that's fixed and standard. Is there some kind of way here to to make Sharia look more like or seem more comparable and integrate it with, with common law, which at, at the centre of the East India Company back in London, that's in a sense the, the, the norm conceptually as well as as, as as practically as legally. Absolutely. Um, so I think the one of the first surprises doing the archival research for this book was, you know, when when scholars of scholars and students of empire talk about empires, we tend to see these pyramids of order and hierarchy and logic, right? And while the top of that pyramid might be ordered and logical and hierarchical, the bottom of that pyramid is absolute chaos, right? So um, we are not, in my understanding of, of reading of the, of the archive, in neither in 1765 or in 1874, are we talking about experts in the law and colonial government going out with a plan, uh, a huge staff uh, and a military force in order to put forward a pre-considered rollout, right, of empire. This is um, colonial administrators dealing with fractious local subjects whose languages they barely speak, whose logics they don't understand, whose consent they need, right, trying to piece together, often with the tips of their fingers, um, what they imagine the colonial state to be. And in order to make that imagination real, they resort to at least three different kinds of things. One, a huge amount of comparative and translational work, right? So the Quran is like the Bible. Uh, Victoria is like the Mughal Empire, emperor. Um, the, you know, the British monarchy is therefore like the Mughal monarchy. Um, the queen is the head of the church, therefore the Mughal emperor must be the head of Islam in India, right? The um, Quranic text, uh, the, a mosque is like a church, an imam is like a priest. That comparative work continues, right? It continues to the detriment of us all, honestly. But the, um, and so, yes, there's, a, there's a, a, a huge effort to make sense of Islam in the language of um, the British experience uh, at home as well as in other parts of empire, including, for example, in places like Ireland, right? That the colonization, the, the um, rollout of empire begins first in the home territories in the British Isles. And some of those lessons come forward from that. But so, yes, the common law becomes this kind of comparative lens. The Anglican church becomes a comparative lens. And the, the treaties um, make explicit reference to this, right? They, um, they act as though um, um, Islam and Christian, Anglican Christianity are infinitely comparable, um, that Islam and Hinduism and Christianity and Judaism are all sort of boxes that are interchangeable in their relationship to law and life. Um, and in doing so, um, they invent, that's a, um, it's a big word to cover a multitude of different kinds of adjustments, but they invent things like family law, like personal status, um, and they invent things like religion. They imagine um, those categories to be cognate. So that's one, there's enormous comparative work being done. 
um, they're also learning as they go along what an empire and a state looks like. So it's not just the Sharia that is transformed, right? That the colonial encounter is an act, is an encounter of mutual reimagination on both sides. Um, so, and the colonial state itself, in its clothing, in its attitudes, in its self-reference, in its imaginaries, learns a huge deal about what it means to be an effective empire, what it means to do the law, what it means to do religion from the Ottomans and the Mughals. And an example of this includes, for example, um, you know, in 1874, they signed the Treaty of Pankor under a certain amount of duress, right? The, and they attempt to renegotiate it very soon after um, because the terms are uh, not only incomprehensible, but also unacceptable. And the British tell the Malay chiefs, um, the Pankor Treaty is just like the Quran. You can neither take a word from it nor add a word to it. I mean, that's nonsense, right? The chiefs know it's nonsense. The colonial officials know it's nonsense, but it's aspirational talk, right? They want very much for treaty language to be like Quran language. And that sort of sense of what the law can be like um, is a sense that emerges not from London and from um, the kind of center of the common law imaginary, but from the Indian experience. Um, so the history of Islamic law, in my view, is not just a history of Muslims under colonialism. It's about the making of the modern state. It's about the place that assigns religion, and it's about the enduring central role of law within that relationship into the present moment. That's so interesting, and th this is why, for me, and I hope our listeners, Akbar's Chamber, is, is so interesting, because your perspective as a scholar of Islamic law and as a historian, but as a political scientist. So, yeah, you're interested in how Islamic law and, and the British Empire fits into, yeah, kind of the, the domains of understanding, yeah, kind of political science, big questions. And one of the things I think is really interesting, the way... It, for me as a historian, the way you're talking is that you're talking about your languages of a colonial encounter or many, many encounters, not of a, as a, some historians have, a different school of scholars, a, a colonial project. There's one idea dreamt up in London and, and that project is steamrolled, you know, kind of throughout. You're presenting more of a multipolar history, really, which is there are many of these different poles, whether of the East India Company, London or Calcutta, or indeed these various other states or actors or, or, or sites of these, these encounters. And of the period that we've been dealing with so far, and we're now going to move beyond the 1880s then, we have London, we have Calcutta, so the, the two centres of the East India Company, and then from 1858 of the Raj in London and the capital of British India in Calcutta in turn. But from early on, the East India Company has also been reaching out to Malaya, what we now call Malaysia, whether Penang in the northwest of what's now Malaysia or indeed of Singapore, of these ports have been trading ports for the East India Company. And then they become these other important political and legal sites and indeed inland as well. And then you mentioned the Suez Canal, which opens in 1869 as the means of really connecting London much more um, efficiently to the Indian Empire, and indeed, as you've said, from 1874, especially with the Treaty of Pankor, then the, the Empire in Malaya, as it was called then. And then the 1880s, I think it's 1882, isn't it, when the British uh, sort of uh, take over in a different kind of sort of imperial setup. The, the Empire has many different sort of legal and on-the-ground forms of, uh, of uh, state and administration, whatever it is. So, in short, then, by the 1880s, then, if we take that date, much has already changed. But can I ask you now then, is a, what happens thereafter to Sharia, to its scope, its public status, its practical functions, in this heyday, so to speak, of colonial rule over India, Malaya, and from the 1880s, Egypt? So if you can take us from that time, the 1880s, through the First World War, or wherever you'd like to finish. Sure. The um, So the... Going back to Malaya, right, the, um, one of the things we start to see is the rollout, um, 
the geographical and the administrative rollout from um, after the initial treaty making moments and the, the violence and the chaos that ensues, uh, in fact, when the Malay chiefs do reject the Treaty of Concord very soon after, <laughs> um, that there is um, then um, the work of institutionalization of these agreements um, and treaties and understandings. And in, in Malaya, in Egypt and in India, that follows some of the same contours, but also takes um, the contours of, of um, the politics and the networks and the political resources that are already on the ground. So in the, uh, from the 1880s into, the, into 1914 in Malaya, um, you're also seeing an increasing um, confluence um, of British imperial logics and understandings of Islam and Islamic law um, with local elite power holders um, who, whatever their um, actual sense of the legitimacy of these understandings is, find reason to accept them, right? And so I'm... I'm you know, aware that the, the conversation is um, at the level of law and culture and society. Um, there is, of course, a whole other story about dispossession and violence and appropriation and corruption that we can also talk about. But, but here at the level of the law, we're talking about not a project of daily coercion. We're talking about a project in which um, the British find partners um, with whom the, that logic um, of local autonomy over a more limited domain of Islam makes sense, right? Um, and in Malaya, those partners are the Malay sultans um, and they sign and make agreements with um, almost all of the sultans of the Malay states between the 1870s and, the, um, and 1914, Johor is the last of those states right before World War I. Um, and so you see a kind of replication down the Malay Peninsula of these hierarchies, of these legal instruments, and a replication of the bureaucracy of Islamic law into which more and more people invest, right? So there's a kind of um, geographic um, expansion of scope. There's an institutional hierarchy that's replicated from one place to another. And there is perhaps most importantly of all, um, an investment by local elites in these logics, such that their authority begins to make sense in the language and the institutions of this new political space. Um, there is a certain extent to which that has already been true in India, right? So you see in the 1880s in India, a generation of British trained Muslim judges, lawyers, and legal experts um, who then work in the vein that you, um, I mean, you raised the question of legal pluralism and legal translation, they are the, um, the major producers of that translative work, right? They are the ones who are making sense of um, Islam to the British and the British to uh, Islamic institutions. They are often the ones who are trying to find cognate logics between the mosque and the church, um, the Sharia and uh, you know, the language of the um, Hadaya on one hand and the language of the, of the Bible on the other. Um, so the story of the 1880s into the 1920s is less a story of treaties and the division of jurisdiction and more a story about the way that the life of the Muslim state and the religious, political, and social investments of the Muslim subject become a part of this new space. Um, so, you know, in, again, you know, you're right, I call it the colonial encounter. I'm not trying to um, discount the violence and I'm not trying to discount the loss. Um, but I think, you know, as a story of Muslim agency, the story of colonization is not a story of coercion in an, alone. Right. It's also a story about negotiation and compromise and strategy and, um, as many Muslims in the world do today, right, uh, believing in the Sharia and trying to figure out creative ways to get to it despite the obstacles. Um, and so there's a lot of that going on as well. So we see from the 1880s to the 1920s, 
two sets of Muslim investments in this conversation. And the first of which is the bureaucrats, colonial officials and rulers who find ways to make sense of this new restricted um, realm of Islamic law um, and make for themselves an authoritative space. And then you see um, alongside them, and sometimes, you know, uh, brothers and parents and cousins, right, the, um, um, sometimes the same people working on, on both sides of this conversation, um, people trying to figure out ways to deal with British imperialism um, on its own terms. Uh, so there's a kind of paradoxical problem that the, that the law makes real, which is that even to resist the British in their courts and on their own terms, there are certain things you have to accept, right? The, in order to register resistance, um, be legible as objecting, first you have to accept which court you register with, what languages you speak, how you identify, how you argue. And so even the uh, Muslims who are working um, let's call it for now resistance, right, against um, the logics of the colonial state, find themselves at first having to figure out how to accommodate its language, its institutions in order to resist it. And so that, that, that's quite an interesting dynamic. Um, and it leads to a kind of vitality and creativity um, across all three um, of these cases about um, how to deal with colonization, how to make sense of modernity, how to be Muslim and do Shari'i things um, in this new world. That's so, at once, what you've explained to us is, is, is so very subtle uh, and nuanced, but also you know, extremely clear, which is often so great to be talking to a political scientist. <laughs> Things are, you have a sense of all the muddy detail, but also bringing such clarity of analysis to it. And one of the important factors in, in your approach and, and in your book, The Politics of Islamic Law, is that you're keen to show the, the importance of local factors and local participants in these transformations, what you call at one point there, the, the, the partners uh, uh, in these different local spaces. So what were some of the key differences then, the distinctions in the trajectories of legal development in the three locales that you you examine, which is a colonial India, Malaya, and Egypt. There are um, a bunch of factors that fuel these variations, right? The um, if you stand, if you tell the story from the perspective of Egypt, one of those factors is the fact that Egypt has already been colonized multiple times over. And so there are overlays that um, after the 1880s, um, the British have to deal with uh, that, you know, the French, uh, the Ottomans, and then various um, sort of Egyptian um, views and uh, particularities of institution that then lead um, to a specific set of outcomes, which I'll talk about later. Um, in India as well, right, your first, um, there is the institutional reality, which you referred to earlier, of company rule, which I think we, we tend to gloss too easily as British Empire, right, but the company is a different empire doing a different thing than the British do after 1858. But that overlay remains, right, as do, um, as does the legacy of uh, which elites were allowed to survive and continue to play roles in local government and which were not. Um, and so there's that um, that occurs in India as well, um, as well as the moment in which the British come to India, which, um, you know, by the 1880s in Malaya, um, much more had been um, um, allowed to settle and um, the sort of moment um, that the British arrive is a moment that's already um, kind of deeply invested in particular kinds of modes of governance in uh, networks of global capitalism, so on and so forth, right? So you've got these big structural um, differences uh, that continue to matter. One of the somewhat surprising, perhaps, maybe not surprising, but things that become that 
that happens in Malaya that doesn't happen as much, despite um, the bifurcation between Hindu and Muslim that I talked about in India. In Malaya, one of the really sort of enduring things that starts to happen is the in, entwining um, of the language of Islam uh, with the language of ethnicity. Right. Um, and so the Malay sultans become heads of state. The Pankwa Treaty invests them with a kind of new um, autonomy over religion and culture. Um, and that investment um, then leads to the next sort of hundred years um, in which the position of the Malay sultans as sovereign um, over their states um, means that they have autonomy over not only Islam, but over Malay ethnicity, culture, and the place of Malays um, in the states. Um, and this leads eventually um, to Malaysia being one of the only places in the world where um, the constitutional character of Islam is inextricable from Malay ethnicity, right? Um, that's a development that, um, you know, we could talk about in greater detail, but for now, let's call it unique, right? And it's unique in part because of the investments made in the 1870s and the 1880s in Malay sultans, in religion and custom, um, as particular autonomous spaces for, uh, for local elites. Right? And so the, the, um, that also means predictably, right, that the centrality of Islam and Malayness to the authority of the sultans in Malaya um, necessarily requires that when challenges to their authority come in the nationalist and the post-colonial period, they come precisely from old and new Islamic elites, so that, that there's a, a, there are poles of a, a political contest already being set into place, um, such that the domain of contest over Islamic legitimacy in Malaya um, has become deeply entangled in race politics. Perhaps looking at events in India for the, in the present moment, um, we can now say that about India in a quite, quite different way, right? But for a range of reasons, uh, not as much in the case of Egypt. And so there, there, is, there are those divergences and differences. And in the case of Egypt, again, there's already a series of institutional um, court organized, administrative, um, and codified um, legal institutions in place. And so the story of Islamic law after the 1880s in Egypt is a story of increasing institutionalization, of codification, um, and of you know, administrative regularization. Um, that said, we also start to see new kinds of convergence, right? So we see divergence based on uh, different histories, but we're entering a period in which uh, the ulama of Deoband, the um, you know Ottoman and Turkish uh, nationalist elites, um, Malay uh, students and scholars and pilgrims are meeting. They're meeting on steamships. They're meeting in Mecca. They're meeting in um, Calcutta. They're meeting in Singapore. They're sending each other letters. They're writing in each other's newspapers. And so we're also seeing new kinds of convergences um, and increasing similarities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the strategies of Muslims to what they are beginning to articulate as a common colonial, late colonial ex experience, right? Um, and these similarities, as your book taught me for the first time when I was a graduate student, right? These similarities mark an increase in exchanges in South Asia, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, facilitated by some basic material transformations, right? Uh, technological change, the colonial peace, and the opportunities these afforded to existing Muslim networks of learning, of pilgrimage, of trade. And so we see complicated divergences and reconvergences around um, what have by the late 1880s into the early 1900s become fairly accepted ideas about um, what Islamic law is, to whom it should apply, what it is not, 
um, how it represents resistance and accommodation to modernity and empire, um, and how best to articulate resistance. Right. The um, um, and so the the in some ways um, the story after eighteen eighty and eighteen ninety is also a story about an increasingly um, um, rapid set of conversations uh, between these three places um, in which some of those strategies are elaborated. One of the things that this makes uh, <clears throat> me, me, me think of, and perhaps it's worth clarifying, is, is this very nice phrase that you have in your book, the paradox of Islamic law. And if I can paraphrase your paradox, please correct me. Is that, but the, the paradox of Islamic law, as you explain it, is that Sharia is being symbolically centralized and perhaps administratively centralized by uh, the colonial state. But it's also being increasingly, this is the paradox, a little paradoxical element, being marginalized from what the state does. And uh, by which you, 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 you mean uh, that, that so much of, of what Sharia was once involved with larger ethical concerns, as well as perhaps the commercial domain or state foreign policy or policies of declaring war or peace or many of these bigger initiatives. The, the scope of Islamic law then has now shrunk to one of the things you call a Muslim personal law, marriages, inheritance, divorce, these type of things. So I, th I think perhaps it's important for some listeners to recognize, those that don't, that that much of the legal system now, what actually is law in, in whether in in India and indeed Pakistan and Bangladesh, as well as Egypt and, and Malaysia, isn't entirely Sharia, or indeed isn't you know what was what was Sharia beforehand? You know this domain, as you've uh, Sharia, then uh, has uh, shrunk then through what you've called this this paradox of Islamic law. Uh, do, do you want to correct me? I mean, please do if I've explained your paradox very badly. No, no, I think that that's that's right. The um, it, it's it's I think at the heart of um, some of the tensions uh, that run um, through debates that we have about what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be a Muslim state, what the difference between an Islamic state and a Muslim state are, you know, how how to make claims as a Muslim subject of the state, right? Um, that there there is a kind of um, important piece of our history that um, gets elided when we think about Islamic law only as um, substantive rules, right? If we think about Islamic law only as substantive rules, um, then there are moments when it's um, easier to think about um, being a Muslim, getting the getting Sharia as having access to the substantive rules, but what I think um, is harder to see, um, but more important and consequential, um, is the universe within which those rules now have to function if they can function at all, and the logic that that universe applies to those rules. And so, when you um, brought up legal pluralism earlier. I think that there's many, there are many states, uh, both Muslim and not, not Muslim, that continue to practice a kind of legal, legal pluralistic um, um, sort of process when thinking about the delivery of Islamic law to Muslim subjects, which is um, the, the kind of East India box box view, right? That yeah, you've got the, the box that's marked Islam, you've got the box that's marked Hindu, you've got the box that's marked uh, Judaism. Um, and you can hand that box and its contents over um, to each subject as they demand, right? And what we miss when that happens and when we make a demand for the delivery of Islamic law in that way um, is that it is the state's box. It decided what went into it. It decides when to hand it over and when not to hand it over. It decides when to take it back. And it decides how and under what circumstances it will recognize you as Muslim. Um, and so I think that that paradox is um, kind of central to conversations between uh, Islamic legal historians and political scientists and um, um, Islamic scholars um, of the law. Um, because the power context within which we talk about the Sharia in the present moment 
requires an understanding both of the contents of the box and of the box itself. Right? That's a really helpful metaphor. And, and, and this is actually functioned as a very nice little segue, as I hoped it would, between where we left off in sort of the 1920s and where I want to finish off, as I often do in Akbar's chamber in, in the present day. So what would you say, Isa, were the, you have to ask his name just two, for the sake of uh, brevity, what would we say were the two most consequential outcomes then of these transformations for Muslims today? Um, so it, it is a, uh, you know, it runs all the way through our conversation. I think that the, the first um, of these significant changes, the most important is not to substantive rules of the Sharia and of Islamic law, but to their application as part of the repertoire of the modern state, right? That the embeddedness of, the, of Sharia principles in some domains of state and not others, as you've said, right? In personal status and family and marriage and divorce, but not in taxation, not in the law of war, not in public administration, um, that, that that has led to a fundamental alteration in what many Muslims perceive Islamic law to be. And so more important and significant and consequential than the transformation in law is I think the transformation in the relationship between Islamic law, state power and authority and the Muslim subject um, and what makes that Muslim subject Muslim in the eyes of the state and therefore uh, in our own eyes. And so there's a fun fundamental irony, I think, in um, many, not all, many um, political movements that demand um, the delivery of Islamic law as part of the identity of an Islamic state, which is that the defense of this codified, fairly authoritarian, fairly essentialized textualist Islamic law as authentically Islamic, um, is a historical legacy, right? It's not that this is not to say that uh, the demand for the Sharia is inauthentic. It's not to say either that the demand for the Sharia is ineffective as a way of making a claim about what it means to be Muslim and what it means to be Islam an Islamic state. But when we forget that long history, that history between the 1750s and the 1950s, and defend, for example, you know, the administration of Muslim Law Act 1885 as authentically Islamic, um, I feel like we might be shortchanging ourselves as well as uh, others, right? Um, and you see this moment happening in history as well. You see by the end of the 19th century, for their own strategic, political, and cultural reasons, Malay and Indian and Egyptian Muslim elites speaking of Islamic law as code rather than as the jurisprudence um, institution, educational system, and uh, logical universe um, that derives from the Sharia. And so that's the first, which is a kind of institutional story. And I'm afraid the second comes from that, which is that that concentrated domain of Islamic law happens to be not for accidental reasons, right, for reasons related to the East India Company coming from a place of Victorian patriarchy themselves, right? Working on questions about religion and privacy and public good um, through India in the 1760s into the 1880s. That the centralized domain of Islamic law that is left to it um, in the present state today tends to be uh, what we call family and personal status law. I think there's a lot of work that continues to need to be done about this, but it is not my understanding of the classical sources that this is a category that exists in the Sharia itself, right? It's not natural to Islam um, to think about the family as the privileged space of, of religious observance, nor as um, the protection of the family and the private as the fundamental job of the Sharia. And so I think the investment of all of that concentrated energy over the area of the Muslim family, over the areas of gender, marriage and divorce has led to um, a series of really intractable tensions um, in which um, Muslim movements and politics find themselves having to choose between um, demands for change and justice and demands for preservation and authenticity. 
Professor Isa Hussain, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you. Da 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 da